0: Welcome to Backstage the Enharmonic. I'm your host Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is Jeff Seip. I've been a fan of Jeff Seip's drumming for well over 20 years now. I've been fortunate the last few years that I've been able to perform with Jeff during the Jerry Garcia Symphonic Tour. Uh, when they made stops in New Jersey and New York, I was in the percussion section in the orchestra. And besides performing with Jeff, we got to hang backstage and uh, spend some time together. Jeff is an inspiration at the drums and away from them. So I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic.
1: Hi, Jeff. Are you there? I am here. Hey, thanks for taking some time to be on the podcast, Jeff.
2: Oh, what a privilege. What an honor. Thank you.
1: So all of my guests, I asked them the same question. That's a great starting point, and it literally goes back to the beginning. Do you have a clear memory of the first time some music had an impact on you?
2: Absolutely. I do remember, and I'm told that even earlier, I was standing in front of, you know, as a young toddler, standing in front of the speakers of the stereo system, just facing the speaker and dancing along with whatever was playing there. But later on, I have a solid memory of going to the piano and finding the melody of um, uh, A Silent Night. And I figured out how to play the melody after, you know, you know, uh, fooling around with some intervals. And I found that I, I could do it. And it was a joyous feeling to actually physically manifest what was in my head as a memory. And that was a just a beautiful feeling. So uh, I can't describe the emotion other than joy,
1: really. So um, when did you start drums? Did you have formal lessons? Did you start in school? Like, where did that all begin for you, uh, drums and percussion? Sure, yeah.
2: When I was 10 years old, my family moved to Frankfurt, Germany, because my dad was stationed over there. And so I was in the sixth grade, and they were starting a band. So they distributed a piece of paper to all the the students in the school listing all the available instruments um, if you wanted to join the band and I looked it over and my eyes were drawn to drums and percussion so I circled that and I went home and asked my folks if that you know if I could do that and my dad said well what about clarinet what about flute And I said, no, Dad, you know, drums are drums are really, you know, that's what I want to do. And they said, fine, great, go ahead. And I remember my very first lesson, it was, I had a pair of drumsticks, but I didn't have a practice pad. So they, they asked everybody just to bring something to hit. And so my mom gave me the cutting board that she used in the kitchen. <laughs> it was a small one. So I brought that, and that was my first practice pad. Um, the instructor found a room for us. And... The first thing I learned was the grip, how to hold the sticks and how to let the stick bounce by itself. Before any strokes or any music or anything, he just wanted to get me to feel how the stick rebounded in my hand against the the, the playing surface. So then we went to double strokes and I found that the stick really could play itself if you let it, and that was my first insight into technique and that's how we started and it was a really joyous experience too um it was kind of magical i don't know why but I, I i saw the magic in it and so then they gave me a practice card and the practice card had the days of the week it was green rectangular practice card and i was asked to practice 10 minutes a day and i went home and 10 minutes went by so fast i said well i'm just going to go the extra mile and go 15 minutes <laughs> so i put it- I put the extra time in, more than I was asked to do, and I, I found the joy in that. And then I was off and running. Um, we are staying in an apartment complex where the neighbors had an older, uh, older son that had a drum, and he wanted to sell it. It was a snare drum. I think it was an old Ludwig. And so I asked my mom and dad if I could get that drum, and they said, well, you'll have to work for it. And I said, okay, great. And they, they assigned me a task to sweep the stairways every day, and I would get uh, $10 a week for that. So I put five weeks into it, and he sold me the snare drum for 50 bucks. And um, my dad saw that I was interested and serious about it. So I asked for a drum set. And he said, well, let's wait, you know, do a few performances at school, and if you, if you stick with it and if you're serious, We'll consider it. And really, just a a few few weeks went by, and he took me to the drum store. And while I looked through the magazines of of drum sets, he went over to the piano area, because he really wanted a piano. And he was (laughs) shopping for a piano while I was shopping for a drum set. And I found a Trumpsa, which is like a sonar knockoff, a German-made drum set named Trumpsa, And the color was... uh, Tiger stripe sparkle, and he kind of laughed at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it matched the seat on my Sears bike. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same kind of finish, and uh, I was just so so happy. And my dad got what he wanted; he got a piano, and I got a drum set. And that's kind of, that's how it all started.
1: Do you still have any of those original instruments that you got as a child?
2: No, I've I. Uh... I sold those and upgraded to a Ludwig when I came back to the states. In, uh, I guess I was start I was starting ninth grade, uh, high school, and so I got a a Ludwig. It was a, it had already been owned previously, you know, three other owners, and it was not in great shape, but it was a good deal. And it was pink champagne sparkle, and I loved that drum, drum set. And then over the years, by the time I had graduated, I had stripped off champagne and brought it found out it was pine wood underneath it (laughs) and lacquered those and I had a natural stain and it was new to me again
1: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I did the same thing in high school I ripped off the covers and I stained it (laughs) because I wanted a new drum set so there it was
2: (laughs) (laughs) there it was
1: (laughs) yep now when you first started over in Germany with lessons were you playing match grip or traditional
2: I was playing traditional grip. That's the way I was taught. But in the first few weeks, I switched to match grip because my mentor, Tommy Belt, who was a year older than me, had long hair, he was playing in a rock and roll band, and had a girlfriend, was playing match grip. (laughs) And I wanted to be like Tommy Belt. And he (laughs) said, you know, Billy Cobham plays this way. Oh, who's Billy Cobham? And, uh, you know, he explained that since... um, stands could make your drums level, they don't have to be tilted, that you could play match grip this way. Yeah, So I took him at his word and I started playing match grip and that's the way I've been doing it
1: ever since. Mm-hmm. And I guess you went the traditional route with uh, the book Stick Control by George Lawrence Stone and some of those books?
2: Yeah, those books came to me probably 11th grade or 12th grade and Jim Chapin's book, um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: And uh, the stick control. So then, I found in my senior year, I found a great teacher, whose name Dave Palomar, who was in Washington D.C. and he was playing with the Airmen of Note, the Air Force mm-hmm. Jazz Band. They were incredible. He mm-hmm. was discovered when he was 18 and was told that he had uh, the slot in the in the the band when he graduated if he wanted to. So I think he was about twenty five years old when he when I met him and he started teaching me. I only had six lessons with him, but he gave me a foundation that I still practice every time I practice every day. I go to the to those six lessons that he taught me. And they're they core, they're the foundation. I'm so glad that I got some words of wisdom and and studied with him. uh, he gave me a great start.
1: I I assume you played in rock bands outside of school. Did you also play in academic groups like the concert band, the jazz band, marching band, and all that stuff?
2: Yes. uh, I was in the band from the ninth grade, but Mm -hmm. I always wanted to be in the jazz band because it was just thrilling to listen to. Those big band arrangements is really what I wanted to do. I got turned on to um, fusion music when I was probably 15, So I heard uh, Miles Davis, four or more, and found out about Tony Williams. And then I went backwards and found out about Charlie Parker. And I discovered all roads pretty much connect to those two fellows Charlie Parker Mm -hmm. and Miles Davis. Everybody who's played with them and associated with them were all my favorites, you know. And then Mm -hmm. leading into the the fusion world, uh, electric, when jazz went electric, um, I was right there in high school when it was all happening. So I was listening to Return to Forever and and Mahavishnu Orchestra. That stuff was just thrilling. Um, So I started listening really heavily to that. And in high school, like I said, I wanted to be a part of the jazz band, but I was never allowed in until finally I made it into my senior year. And so there was already a drummer ahead of me that was a really good reader and so he was given all the best charts, and the, he was the first choice for the band, and I was the second guy. And we were playing a Stanley Clark tune in 5-4 off of his first record, and I think it was called Children of Forever. I have to go back and find that. And it was in 5-4, and we were rehearsing, and it was a real dynamic chart, so I could really lean into it pretty well. And I remember we had a tri-state competition, in uh you know I was in school in Fairfax, Virginia, so we had uh d c in maryland I, f- I forget, but we were up against Langley, a high school jazz band, and they won just about it for the best in the area so I was really excited to be there. I remember playing this chart, and the band director who didn't have full confidence in me it was kind of like whiplash if you've ever seen the movie whiplash <laughs> yeah it's about as almost as intense as that not quite <laughs> but very serious you know yeah do great for him but i was determined to make this performance all i remember lifting the band particularly in one section where it got dynamic and I had a chance to lift the whole band up during a solo and I went for it. And he looked over at me with a combination of concern and delight and surprise when I started digging in, you know? And, uh, so it was a great performance. I thought I did okay. You know, and I was sitting in the audience uh, when they were announcing all the winners of the different competitions or whatever. And I was sitting next to a girl that I kind of liked. She was a drummer and I was trying to get a date <laughs> and <laughs> my name was called for uh, best rhythm section performer. And I was shocked she was, she was poking me. It's like, that's you, that's you go up there. So I went up to the stage <laughs> and I uh, received the award and I was surprised. And then afterwards on the way out of the uh, auditorium, I saw one of the judges and I was with my parents and I asked if I could go over there and talk with them a minute. So I went over and I asked and like what why did you choose me? I I just want to know cuz there was another drummer that gave a solo that was brilliant and I thought for sure he would you know, he would be given a, an award. And he told he uh, looked at me and told me he said you were a team player and you made the band sound really great and one and that stuck with me, you know, I, I suddenly realized that, you know, the drummer has the power to really um, uh, elevate the music, you know, if it's, if it's done well, the the whole band is going to sound better if the drummer really is doing his gig. And so that stuck with me and I, I try to remember that.
1: Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's great. <laughs> so um your dad played you said your dad bought a piano when you were at the store uh did you did your family play music together ever? Well my dad traveled a
2: lot but when he came home he enjoyed winding down and he would play some piano. And he played as a kid and I think he always really wanted to develop that even more than he did. But the thing that I remember most about that experience was the sound of the piano when he played. It had a velvet touch. It was like Bill Evans, who I discovered later wow. on. And his his chords and his touch was so gentle and velvety. That's the thing I remember most. And so I, I think he would have spent a lot more time with it if that was his first call in life. Mm-hmm. But the music was real, real important to him. My mom and dad met in the church choir, so they were... Yeah. Their foundations, you know, music brought them together. And they were always supportive of me. Uh, Anything I wanted to do, even in the rock band I played in in high school, there were two guitar players that were two years older than I, and they asked me to join their band. They turned me on to all kinds of rock and roll I had never heard before. And uh, so my folks were very encouraging. Anytime anytime I had a chance to rehearse and play and hang out with those guys, they let me do it. Especially if it was at my house, because my mom told me she liked to keep an eye on what we were doing. And she <laughs> yeah. allowed us, she opened up the garage to us and let us play and hang out. And she always knew I was safe. So, uh, that's what I'm hoping to do with my children. Just let them do their thing here. So mm-hmm. I can keep an eye on them. Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Invite everyone over to our house. Yep. <laughs> that's
2: right. Yeah. So my mom was like a second mother to. To Those guys and the musicians that would come over and hang out, and they still uh, they still call and keep in touch with her as a second mom that's
1: beautiful so it's funny how small the music world is the, the longer you stay in it. I'm just going to give you a quick aside. I never told you this before, but it's my path to Jeff Sype, kind of transcendental sounding, but um, I was in a rock band <laughs> back in college in 94. And we were playing hits of the 50s and 60s. It was a, at an amusement park. It was like a doo-wop, old rock and roll thing. And this bass player that I was with um, kept saying, you have to listen to this group called the Aquarium Rescue Unit. I'm like, all oh, right, whatever, whatever. Uh, but, you know, we lived right next to each other in the, in the housing and everything. So finally, one day, we're sitting around, he puts on the CD and my, I remember when I first heard the Aquarium Rescue Unit, it was like the, the ceiling of the apartment almost opened up. I'm like, what is this? What's happening? I'm like, who's the drummer? <laughs> and lo and behold, it was you back in 1994. And uh, yeah. ever since then, I've been a huge fan. And I was following your career on recordings, of course. And then maybe 10 years ago, you went to my buddy's school and did a clinic. And I was thinking, I'm like, you're the guy. So I thought that was as good as it was going to get. I thought that was it. I had reached the top of, you know, the Jeffsite Mountain. And then, lo and behold, the last two years we uh, met on stage and we did the uh, Jerry Garcia concerts with Warren Haynes on, um, um, on the East Coast here. So it's unbelievable how small the uh, music business really is.
2: Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think of it as a bunch of cousins that we haven't met yet. But we're just, right. you know, we're part of the same family. And when we do meet, we recognize each other.
1: Oh, no, that's a great way to say it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So that, those concerts were a lot of fun, man. You talking about supporting the band, the what what you just did, going back to your high school um, trophy. The same thing I could say when we were just did our last concert at um, Central Park. You drove the orchestra, you drove the band, but then when it was your time to you know shine, you know the the everyone was on their feet, uh, and then you went back to your supportive role and really propelled the orchestra and the band, which I think is so key to a great drummer, because I'm sure you see drummers, too. They're great drummers, but maybe they don't know when to hold back and support. So you you do both aspects of uh, drumming incredibly, and me and the other percussionists just loved watching you every night at those concerts.
2: Wow, thanks so much. You know, that, that thrills me to the core. Um, I had a blast with the symphony, and it's something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to play in a symphony orchestra, but I never dreamed that I'd be playing drum set. Um, and... You know, in a, in a modern context and, and in front of the orchestra. And what a thrill to have 54, you know, 60, 80 people behind you. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably one of the greatest thrills of my musical career. Uh, glad to share that with you.
1: Me too, exactly. Yeah, it was incredible. So I hope we get to do it again sometime.
2: Oh, yes, I feel like we will.
1: Excellent. So, um, let's see, do you do any teaching? I do.
0: And I
2: require, you know, I need to do some teaching, and I love to do some teaching. So I have a garage that's been turned into a studio. I've got my kit, and then I've got a second kit that can be um, very low set for my my young students, and they can raise up to full adult size also. So it's a sonar martini kit, and uh, it's a blast to play. I tune it low with coated heads on it, so I can still get a full round sound. And they're really controlled sounding. The bass drum is only 16 inches, but I've got it tuned as low as it could possibly go and still produce a tone. And I'm I'm having a great time with that. I've got uh, some microphones set up, and I finally got Logic Pro, so I can start recording now. I've got a few drum tracks that uh, I'm working on. And that... Uh, you know teaching for me is is really a sacred thing, it, and it's so beneficial not only to the students, but to me too, because uh, when you're teaching, you have to describe what you're playing, and if you have to describe what you're playing, you have to have thought about it and know what you're talking about and know what you're trying to deliver. So it's a challenge for me to teach because it it forces me to clarify my thoughts and my technique and my demonstrations. And when I see the young kids finally get um, a groove or uh, um, some independence or coordination, and I see that light, bu- light bulb and that smile, uh, everything is, you know, it's, um, it makes it all worth it. Uh, also, you know, when the, when, the, yeah, when the gigs, you know, the calendar is always a roller coaster when you're a um, self employed jazz drummer trying to to make uh to work in all these different genres you know so when the calendar is real busy i don't have time for teaching or if i if i do some teaching it'll be during sound check uh or after sound check uh, on the road when we're all set up and everybody takes a break i'll do a little video clip of uh, of a simple idea and i'll mail that to my students and then they'll mail me back a video of them uh, once they've got it complete, <clears throat> so we keep in touch that way. And then when I'm off the road, not touring, I'm back to teaching at home and doing local gigs. I've got a handful of students. You know, the adults come and go, um, but the kids remain. I've had students uh, that stay f- four years and then move on, and uh, that's just a—it's uh, really fulfilling uh, for me to see them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And that's so true what you said about, you know, you might be able to do it, but when you have to explain it to somebody else, it's deepening your knowledge of whatever the concept is, because maybe the first time you explain it, it's not going to work for that kid. You have to explain it again. And then it's reinforcing it to you. It reminds me of um, Jeff Coffin. Um, You've participated in many of his workshops. When he compares it to a tree, you see the tree. But the roots are under the ground. They're just as big as the tree, or bigger. So the whole teaching thing mm-hmm. ties into that, which is wonderful.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Jeff Coffin is a deep fella. He um, mm-hmm. he really understands uh, education, and but he combines spirit with it. So it's it's never just academic. It's always got. He gives you food for thought, and and even above that, he gives you uh, the demonstration. Of how joyous it really is he laughs and he's serious and then he laughs again you know so it's uh mm-hmm. he represents music very well i think in all its aspects because uh everything from a joyful noise all the way down to your individual practice uh on specific techniques all of it you know is serious and uh inspiring at the same time i say inspiring because word spirit is lives inside that word so uh, combining uh, your aspirations and your spirit and your your technique and your devotion and love to music it's it's such a beautiful world man it's it's a huge world it's a safe world it's a uh, it's therapy it's it's so many things music is the universal language and it blows me away every time I think about it no matter where you go on the planet no matter who you meet you can sing intervals and you'll feel the same thing together you can sing a major interval and there's happiness you sing a minor interval and there's sadness no matter who you are you sing a tritone and there's discomfort you know no matter who you are on the planet and that way if you don't speak the same verbal language you certainly feel the same language emotionally and that's what i
1: love about music now, this next question, uh, I ask all my listeners, and I, I can guess what your answer is going to be, but I'll ask the question, and you can, I'll let you field the uh, answer. Do you listen to music for pleasure? Absolutely. I mean,
2: there is no background music for me. It's impossible. If something's playing and somebody's talking, my ear goes to the music, and I find myself <laughs> um, asking, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> it takes my ear right away and I have right. to turn music off if I'm having a conversation because there is no background music for me. Um, I love that. Yeah.
1: I love that. For, I love that. There is no background music for me. I'm going to, I'm going to put that on my uh, studio wall, but there is no background music for yeah. me. Jeff. Seif. I think I'll <laughs> make a plaque. <laughs>
2: That's how I feel. There was a comment. Yeah, was um, great. I posted. Yeah. I posted. uh Mike Seal, a great musician, posted something mm-hmm. on Facebook. It was a, a Bach piece that he and a partner were playing as a duet. And, you know, I'm a, a proponent of Mike Seal, and I try to spread the, the, uh, the word of Mike Seal wherever I go. One of my favorite musicians. So he, he posted a brilliant, beautiful piece. And there was a bunch of comments. Go, Mike, go. That's great. It's beautiful. Debbie Say rocks. And uh, then there was one comment. They said background music. That's all it said. So I instantly replied, instantly replied, defending Mike, saying, There is no background music if you're listening. Period.
1: Oh, beautiful. (laughs) I love that. That's even better. That's my second plaque I'll make and put in my studio.
2: And there was no response to that one. I just. uh...
1: Of course. So outside of the music world, do you have time for anything else? Do you have any hobbies or activities that you like to do, not connected to music directly?
2: Yes, you know, music rules my life, but my family is, of course, the most important. So, you know, with the support that I get from my wife and my kids to follow my art and try to make a living doing this um, is is um, is paramount, and it's there. So. If I go on the road, I ask them, you know, is this okay if I do this and this and this and run it by them? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Go do it. Go do it, Dad. We understand you'll be gone for six weeks. It's okay. Go ahead. So I have the love and support from family. And when I'm not playing, I'm home doing stuff for the, the kids, for my wife, and uh, trying to make the house as nice as it can be. And that's my joy. I have a garden, fan- fantastic garden. I'm... Uh, just made some spaghetti sauce with all my tomatoes that I harvested yesterday and it was sweet and aromatic and beautiful and, and that was wonderful. So uh, it's mostly family. You know? We go camping, mm-hmm. we go hiking, we go uh, waterfalling, we go tubing and kayaking. Uh, we live in a beautiful area in the southern Appalachian. Uh, there's more than 260 waterfalls in my immediate community. Uh, So I feel blessed to live here and I feel blessed to have my loving family and support. I'm blessed that they're all healthy. And, uh, you know, when I'm off the road, this is, this is, um,
1: my sanctuary. Excellent, man. Well, we music fans and musicians are blessed to have you playing drums for us, inspiring us and the next generation of drummers out there. So thank you for all of that.
2: Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. If I, if I didn't, tour, if I didn't meet anybody, I'd be doing the exact same thing. So I'm really pleased to be doing something I love and making a career out of it.
1: That's beautiful. Underneath this podcast for the listeners, I'm going to put a uh, link to your website so they can find out your goings-on and your recordings and all that and uh, stay in touch with Jeff Seitz.
2: Fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. And once again, really nice to to spend some time with you, share the stage with you, and uh, get to know you a little bit better.
1: Thank you. Right back at you, Jeff. So again, thanks for taking some time, and uh, I hope to see you soon. Okay, we'll be in touch. Bye bye. Okay, thanks. Bye bye.
0: Today's soundtrack was provided by the Jeff Site Trio. Please visit Jeff's website to download a copy for yourself. Thanks for listening.